0: Good morning, everyone. It is so good for us to be gathered again on a Sunday to bring our worship and praise to the Lord, isn't it? Amen. Amen. Let's uh, pause to address our Lord, pray to our Lord once again for his blessing over the word. Our Father in heaven, you taught us in your word to think on, meditate on things that are true, Honorable, just, pure, lovely, commendable, excellent, worthy of praise. And we need your help this morning, Holy Spirit, to do just that. There are so many things in our world that are unlovely and not commendable and unjust and impure that we are subjected to like a tidal wave each and every day of our lives. And so, Lord, during this hour, as we open your word, the strange new world of the Bible, we pray your help. Help us to be alert to the things that you are saying to your church. And, Lord, we pray also for transformation this morning in our hearts and in our lives. May we not leave the doors later unchanged, but rather changed because you have been with us in this corporate time of worship. We pray in the mighty, the powerful name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Growing up through the decade of the 1980s, I had opportunity to go to an occasional playoff game in my home. See, I have the pulpit here so I can do this, right? <laughs> An occasional playoff game in my hometown of Edmonton, back when the Oilers were simply unstoppable, uh, winning Stanley Cup after Stanley Cup. And I must say that the atmosphere in what was then the Northlands Coliseum was just electric at playoff time. I have many fond memories growing up of celebrating, uh, shouting, actually with 17,000 other people when Gretzky would feed Curry from his office behind the net and the puck would laser beam past the goal line into the net. Uh, But here's the thing, folks. I don't want to talk about hockey very long this morning. When you stop to think about it, what really was the loud shouting about in that instance? As my wife likes to remind me, the shouting, she's not much of a hockey fan, the shouting and the hollering was about nothing more than a small rubber disc traveling past a painted line. That's all. What if you were, say, trapped hopelessly under the power of evil, and the judgment of a holy God was over you, and someone came along and offered himself in your place as a sacrifice to pay for your sins so that now you were forgiven by your maker and put back into right relationship with him and given eternal life. Would, would that be a better reason to shout for joy than a little piece of rubber advancing all over a goal line? The psalmist in our psalm this morning, which is Psalm 95, I hope you have your Bible open, he begins his psalm by inviting you and I, inviting the worshiping community to shout vocally because of God, because of who God is and because of what God has done. So if you're a person that feels like shouting this morning, go ahead Because in doing so, you will be acting in line with the first verse of Psalm 95. The psalmist says, oh, come, or we could render it, come on, let us, what? Now that word sing there in the English Standard Version, and I think in the NIV, is a little too vanilla. It's a little too weak. When you look at the original Hebrew here, because the verb that we find as Psalm 95 opens is a verb that means, listen, to shout with joy, to proclaim with shouts of joy. Once again, to shout with joy, to proclaim with shouts of joy. This is about vocal, out loud enthusiasm, as Psalm 95 opens. It's about verbally and vocally and loudly and enthusiastically celebrating the Lord together in a corporate worship setting. Derek Kidner, in his lovely commentary on the Psalms, says that this is about, and I love this phrase, unashamed enthusiasm. Unashamed enthusiasm over God. And notice here, friends, the us as the psalm opens. Let us be enthusiastic and vocal in praise of God. The picture here is the community of faith encouraging one another to, to, as Kidner says, to rise to the occasion and not drift into his courts preoccupied and apathetic. When you came into the building this morning, Did you take time to encourage someone to come and worship enthusiastically? Did you do that? Verse 1 would be a great verse to memorize and then to speak to someone next Sunday as they're getting out of their car in the parking lot. Oh, hey, good morning. Let us be unashamedly enthusiastic and vocal in our worship of the Lord this morning. Let us make a joyful noise, even if you can't sing, make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. That second verb, see, it's already heating up. I heard an amen. (laughs) That second verb in verse 1, make a joyful noise, likewise, this verb carries connotations of loud celebration. It means, literally, again, to shout to raise a sound, to cry out. As a church, we should take time to incite one another, urge one another to this celebratory, celebratory, there it is, enthusiastic vocal praise. God is the rock of our salvation, according to verse 1. Now, this identification of God as rock is found, of course, throughout the book of Psalms. For example, in places like Psalm 18 and Psalm 62 uh, and a verse in Psalm 94. When you're bushwhacking through the forest and you cross a stream, you look for rocks to step on because you know that rocks will provide a solid foundation. They will provide some safety, some stability for you as you step. Well, calling God our rock is to call him our sure foundation, our stability in a very unstable world, and our safety from the evil one and from death itself. He is the rock of our deliverance, the rock of our salvation. Let's go to verse 2 where we have another invitation. The psalmist says, let us come into his presence, or literally in the Hebrew, let us meet his face. That's literally what it says in the Hebrew. Let us meet his face. When you meet with someone face to face, what happens? You look into that person's eyes, right? you see that person's smile, You notice the contours on that person's face if you're paying attention. There is an intimacy suggested here in verse 2 with this idea of meeting God's face. We meet him face to face in worship as we are this morning. We come and we bring our thanksgiving as the psalmist says and we make a joyful noise to him with songs of praise. That is with melodies with harmonies, with rhythm, with music. Now, friends, if Psalm 95 ended after verse 2, some of us might think, okay, I'm being invited here to this celebratory, I don't know why that word's hard for me, celebratory, loud praise of God, I suppose I can muster up some enthusiasm and do this, although frankly it feels a little forced because maybe I don't feel like giving loud praise. It wouldn't be authentic loud praise if I were to offer it because I'm not feeling it. Notice very carefully that the psalm does not end after verse 2, right? What happens beginning at verse 3 is, and this is important, we get a rationale. We get good reasons now why loud praise is fitting and is appropriate as we come to worship. Notice this. The reason our praise should be enthusiastic in all circumstances, says the psalmist, is that the Lord is a great God and a great king above all gods. That's why we bring shouts of worship because of the greatness and the royal splendor of this God who sits enthroned right now gloriously above each and every one of our circumstances. Amen? The key is to grasp and to see and to digest and to dwell on the greatness of God. And then no matter where we're at in this life, we will find loud shouts of praise to God emanating from the depths of our being. So I want to ask you, what is it that's occupying your attention right now? Is it your circumstances? Or is it more the God who is never surprised and never shaken by your circumstances? The one who is the rock and your captain and your Lord, and your Deliverer. Now, I want us to really spend some quality time this morning with verses 4 and 5, but just before we leave verse 3, I just want to say this, that when the psalmist says here, look at verse 3 with me, when he says that God is a great king above all gods, he's not admitting that there are actual gods that Yahweh is above, Rather, what the psalmist is doing here is he's saying this. Yahweh holds the supreme position over every single thing that people might claim as being divine. There's a difference between there being actual gods other than Yahweh and people simply claiming that there are gods other than Yahweh. There's a difference. Remember that Psalm 96.5 says clearly that all the gods of the peoples are what? Worthless idols. That's all they are. Yahweh is it. He is the only God, and he is supreme over all the competing ideas of divinity that people may have. Let's go to verse 4. And get ready to get loud if you want to. Listen to what is said about Yahweh here, that that when we dwell on it, should cause us to bring loud, enthusiastic praise. The the psalmist says this, In his hand are the depths of the earth. The heights of the mountains are his Also, Now, my brother Jonathan, in his sermon on Psalm 145 a few weeks back, did a wonderful and blessed job of having us just exult in God because of his greatness and because of the power that he has shown in his creation. Jonathan gave several mind-boggling facts about the glories that God has embedded into his creation. Well, I want to simply add to the chorus of praise that Jonathan started. Verse 4 of our psalm says that God holds in his hand, he controls, he is sovereign over, he maintains, first of all, the depths of the earth. The depths of the earth. Did you know? that the deepest hole into the earth that we humans have been able to dig up to today is 12 kilometers deep. That's a pretty deep hole, right? 12 kilometers. But yet, from the soles of your feet that are resting on the floor of this sanctuary right now, from the soles of your feet to the center of the earth, it's about 6,371 kilometers And the core of the earth, if we could bore a hole down to it, is 6,000 degrees Celsius, which is about equal to the heat on the surface of the sun. God holds the depths of the earth right now in his hand. He is maintaining and sustaining that part of creation that we may never set eyes on. I don't know about you, but I think there's something that makes your heart beat faster and something that takes your breath away when you consider the magnitude and the terrifying, I would use that word, the terrifying awesomeness of God's creative power. This is a God before whom we must tremble. That's all we can do. Consider this also. So we're drilling that paltry 12 kilometers into the earth, (laughs) and we stop the drill just for a moment, and we pick up in our hand two and a half grams of fertile soil. In that two and a half grams of fertile soil, there are six billion living microbes Some scientists estimate now that there are one trillion different species of microbes on this earth and in the earth. But in that two and a half grams of soil, you have six billion microbes, which are necessary, I might add, for us to have bread, for us to have tofu, if you like tofu, for us to have cheese, for us to have sausage, for us to have milk and all manner of fruits and vegetables, not to mention the necessity of microbes to help us digest. In God's hand are the depths of the earth. And, says the psalmist, he continues, the heights of the mountains are his also. Now, you and I can't breathe without the aid of an oxygen tank on a 29,000-foot mountain like Everest. The heights of Everest and K2 are gods, right? They are under his power and under his sovereign sway. The most majestic mountains that you will ever set your eyes on on this earth are always under God, and they are doing the bidding of God. Verse 5, let's continue. I'll get you shouting yet. The sea is his, for he made it, and his hands formed the dry land. In his sermon, Jonathan talked about the sea and used an illustration from Finding Nemo, if I recall, if you were here that week. Let me add to the course of praise. Did you know that there are 1,386,000,000 cubic kilometers of water on Earth? Water obeys God. Water sustains life on the planet. Water acts as an astonishing conduit for solar energy all the way around the globe. The sea is God's for he made it. And in that mass of water on this globe lives a creature called the blue whale. Baby blue whales, I was reading this week, baby blue whales gain, listen to this, they gain an astonishing 198 pounds per day in their first year. Can you imagine? We need a underwater aquatic Atkins diet, maybe, I don't know, 198 pounds per day in their first year. At full size, blue whales can reach a length of almost 98 feet, weighing as much as 20 tons, and the blue whale is the loudest animal on earth. Did you know that? its sounds can reach 185 decibels, which, just so you know, is as if you were standing beside a rocket on takeoff. It's believed that the 185-decibel cry of the blue whale can be heard, get this, up to 1,600 kilometers away by other blue whales. And the psalmist just says, the sea is his. For he made it. (laughs) This psalm so far, friends, is beckoning us toward a higher, bigger vision of God than we have. We need to understand that the God we've come to worship today is not manageable. Amen? This God rules the world with a power that is as terrifying as it is astonishing. This is a God who will not be manipulated. I hope you know that this morning. The pastor A.W. Tozer wrote a book that I think it deserves to be on all of our bookshelves called The Knowledge of the Holy. Some of you may already have that little book. And in that book Tozer encourages the church toward a higher vision of God. We need to have a higher vision of God. He says this. So necessary to the church is a lofty concept of God that when that concept in any any measure declines the church with her worship and her moral standards declines along with it. He says the first step down for any church is taken when it surrenders its high opinion of God. The heaviest obligation lying upon the Christian church today is to purify and elevate her concept of God until it is once more worthy of Him and of her, of the church. Tozer continues In all her prayers, And labors, this should have first place. We do the greatest service to the next generation of Christians by passing on to them undimmed and undiminished that noble concept of God which we have received from our Hebrew and Christian fathers of generations past. I like that. Let's go to verse 6 yet more invitation is given to us here. Verse 6 says, Oh come, or this verb we could render, come in. That's literally what it says. Come in. That is, come in to the sanctuary, I think is the picture here, for corporate worship. Come in. Let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord our Maker. What I want us to notice in this verse is the physicality of worship. That is, how the human body gets involved in worship. In the first couple of verses of the psalm, we were invited, weren't we, to use our voice to praise God. Now in verse 6, we are invited to use our physical bodies in worship. Did you know that worship is physical and not merely spiritual? Why? Because we are whole people. That's the way the scripture understands us. We're not just spiritual, we are physical, and we will be in the glorified state. Amen? We are whole people. And so we have three verbs in this verse that call us to engage physically in worship. The first verb is that word translated into English as worship. Now, in the Hebrew, what this verb suggests is quite literally bowing down low to the ground with our bodies. An appropriate gesture of submission to the God who is being described in this psalm. The second verb here is translated bow down, which acts as an intensifier of the first verb. And then the third verb, notice, is kneel. Kneel before Yahweh, our maker. Bend your knees and sit yourself on your knees before this God who has microbes and the earth's core in his hands, who made water, who is the king over Mount Everest, who made us. That's the only appropriate thing to do in the presence of such a king is to kneel, to bow down. And notice this, our maker, in verse 6, he made each of us. He knit us together in our mother's womb, fearfully and wonderfully. Did you know, concerning your makeup by your maker, that as you look up toward the front right now, there is a physical reaction happening in your retinas from light energy, which in turn is sending nerve impulses to your brain so that you perceive pictures of what you're looking at. And all of that is happening instantaneously without you even having to think about it. The Lord, our maker. And did you know that the same brain... That right now is processing sight is also able, think of this, also able to fill in the details of your peripheral vision even when you're not looking directly at something. The Lord our Maker. And all the while, the same three or four pound brain that's doing all of that is holding your past experiences, your memory, your future hopes. Your emotional life. The Lord, our maker, has done this. This is the same God who is causing you right now to live and breathe and have consciousness in a universe that is so delicately balanced and fine-tuned that by one estimate, For this particular universe to be here, listen to this, the odds are the same as winning a one in one trillion chance lottery, not just once, but 27 times consecutively. The Lord our Maker. Glory to God. Now notice what happens with all these lofty thoughts of God in mind. Watch where the psalmist goes next in verse seven. Look at your Bible. In musical terms, we want to use musical terms, it's it's like if the psalm started at triple forte, right? Really loud and raucous. Now there's a notable decrescendo of sorts down to a mezzo piano section, a section where we should be quieted into reverent awe over what the psalmist says next. Listen to what he says. He says, for he is, that is, the one we've been talking about, right? This great God is what? Our God. And we are the people of his pasture and the sheep of his hand. Blessed be the Lord, the psalmist is saying here. Notice, wonder of wonders. He's saying that we, you and I, the marginalized worshiping community, which is what we are in this day, we are in a special relationship with this stupendous, mighty God. We are the people of his pasture and the sheep of his hand, this God that awes us so much with his sheer creative power. He is the one who has condescended to care for us as our shepherd. Amazing fact. What has God said to us, to his people? He said this, I will walk among you and will be your God, and you shall be my people. Well, look, friends, if Psalm 95 ended there, after that first sentence in verse 7, it would be a sort of beautiful Hollywood ending, wouldn't it? It would be a happy ending to this great praise-inducing psalm about God's greatness. And we just simply turn the page and go on to Psalm 96. But Psalm 95, we notice, doesn't end with the first sentence in verse 7. It goes on. And what follows is a real turning point in the psalm. Notice this. The mood now changes quite dramatically and very suddenly. Now, instead of being encouraged to make loud noise to God as we were at the beginning of the psalm, now we are encouraged at the end of verse 7 to be quiet and to listen to God, to hear his voice. It's hard to hear his voice when you're loud and when you're chattering. The psalmist says, today... If you hear his voice. Now, I want to ask you a question. What day is it today? It's Sunday, yes, but it's today, right? It's not tomorrow yet, and it's not yesterday. It's today. Right now is today. It's always today for us, right? The psalmist is talking to you, and he's talking to me in a sort of perpetual right now in this psalm. He says, today. Today. On this 20th of August, 2017, if you hear his voice, if you hear the voice of the glorious one that we've been describing in this song, do not listen. Don't look at anybody else. Look at yourself. Do not harden your hearts. As at Meribah, as on the day at Massa in the wilderness, when your fathers put me, God is talking, put me to the test and put me to the proof, though they had seen my work. Wow. Okay, so notice what's happened here. We have been invited and beckoned and wooed in this psalm toward this raucous, heartfelt praise of God because of his mighty power and his awesomeness. And now, suddenly, without warning, even as we are still bowing low and kneeling to God out of due reverence, even as we are still contemplating his creative wonders, the psalmist comes along without warning with this prophetic oracle and warns us of the possibility, listen, that our hearts might harden against God. Do you see the sudden turn in this psalm? It almost takes our breath away. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. As at Meribah, as on the day at Massah in the wilderness, Meribah means... Quarrel, or contention, and massa means test. And the reference here with these two words is to both Exodus chapter 17 and Numbers chapter 20, the stories of Israel in the desert during the time of the Exodus, quarreling against God and testing God because Israel was thirsty and hungry. Now listen, friends, even though Israel had witnessed God's awesome power in the plagues, even though they themselves had experienced for themselves his delivering power at the Red Sea, they still grumbled and murmured against God in the wilderness. They still hardened their hearts indeed. They became stubborn and self-strong-willed against God. They closed their hearts to trust in God. They closed their hearts to God's promises. They even question God's right to take them away from Egypt in the first place. God says here to us in Psalm 95.8, the hardening of the heart, this, this refusal to hear and to obey and to trust God can happen to you, worshiping community, and I'm warning you about it. And God gives us this warning, I need to emphasize again, he gives it smack dab in the middle of a psalm that began by inviting and calling us to heartfelt, physical, boisterous worship. He gets our attention here today, does he not? Right in the midst of our corporate worship. God continues in verse 10, Verse 10 is why we need to read our Bibles, to get rid of the sort of the Christianese that a lot of us like to throw out. Let's know what God says. He says, for 40 years, I what? I loathed an entire generation. This is God talking. I loathed that wilderness generation. Perhaps a slightly better translation that's been suggested here by several commentators would be this. For 40 years, I was disgusted with. That comes closer to the Hebrew. I was disgusted with that generation. Yes, God can be disgusted with people. Did you know that? When people rebel against him when people develop stiff necks toward him and when they make their own self-will the Lord of their life, instead of him being the Lord of their life, I was disgusted with that generation and I said, they are a people who go astray in their heart, notice that, and they have not known my ways. Notice that phrase there, go astray in their heart. The people that God is talking about here had gone astray, hadn't they, in the wilderness for 40 years. In a geographical sense, they had wandered all over the place. But parallel with the physical wandering was the wandering in their hearts. They were people who strayed in their affections. They were people who strayed in their decisions and strayed in their willingness to obey, even as they were physically straying through the wilderness. Therefore, says God, as the psalm ends, I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Wow. So just notice how this psalm ends. It's anything but the Hollywood ending that we talked about earlier. Psalm 95 doesn't end with uh, a statement of it'll all be okay. It doesn't end with a beautiful sunset by any stretch. Psalm 95 from the last part of verse 7 all the way down to verse 11 ends, we need to note well, with this solemn warning of great weight. And it simply leaves us there with this warning ringing in our ears as it ends. God wants us to pay attention. It was because of the wilderness wilderness generation's stiff-necked, obstinate refusal to trust and obey that the God of the microbes and the mountains and the blue whales became disgusted with these people and decided, we need to, to see here, to shut them out of his rest, which in their case was what? It was the promised land, of Canaan. Now to gain the land of Canaan was not just a matter of taking hold of real estate. What it meant to gain the land of Canaan was much more than that. To gain the land meant, listen, that the blessing of God and the presence of God was with those people and that they were now in the land furthering God's program for the world. But by their hardness of heart, The wilderness generation simply forfeited all of that. But let's think of Psalm 95 now and the original audience of the psalm itself. Come with me to focus on that for a minute. The the audience of Psalm 95 is an audience that lived well after the wilderness generation. The writer of Psalm 95 is writing to his own community, And from the indications of the psalm, the the community was probably the pre-exilic community. That is, the community of Jews who lived in the land during the time of Solomon's temple, who had yet to be exiled out of the land because of their own sin and rebellion and hardness of heart. And that exile did in fact happen in 587 B.C., But probably this psalm was written and it started to circulate in Israel's worship at some time prior to that exile. The people were invited in the original context of the psalm to come to the temple, there to dwell on the greatness of God and offer God loud, physical, vocal worship. And then suddenly this warning is dropped on them about the hardening of their hearts against God. If it happened to the wilderness generation, it could happen to them. Well, what about us today? Think of it. We have come to church on what day? Yesterday, tomorrow, or today? Today. Today we've come to hear about God, to hear about his greatness, to corporately offer our praises to God, and guess what? The today of Psalm 95 still very much applies. The warning to us right now to hear, to heed, to obey, to trust God and not harden our hearts against him. This warning to not go astray in our affections. I've seen it as a pastor. Time and time again, people going astray in their affections and wandering off the path All of this still applies. Now listen, for us, friends, the stakes are way higher and way greater than they were for Israel, whether the wilderness generation or the pre-exilic community. The stakes for us are the rest that God promises that is still to come in its finality. What is the rest that we are promised? It is the eternal rest of the new heavens and the new earth. To harden our hearts against God in this culture. In this culture that is inviting us to harden our hearts against God. To do that is to jeopardize our inheritance of final and full rest. Now, if you don't want to take my word for it, Let's go over to the New Testament, to the book of Hebrews, chapter 3, and let's hear how the writer of Hebrews brings this warning of Psalm 95 directly into our today. Hebrews 3 starts with six verses emphasizing what? Emphasizing the superiority of Jesus when compared to Moses. Jesus is a new and better Moses. But Note note this, that toward the end of verse 6, It's you and I, isn't it? It's the New Testament church who now come into focus. The church of Jesus Christ here, toward the end of verse 6, is exhorted to do what? To hold fast our confidence, hold fast our confidence, and never stop boasting of our gospel hope. And then, in verse 7, the words might sound very familiar to us by now. It says this. Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, now he's going to quote Psalm 95. Who wrote Psalm 95? Maybe David, but according to the writer of Hebrews, the Holy Spirit did, right? (laughs) Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, we have a human author and we have the divine author. Today, if you hear his voice, does this sound familiar? Do not harden your hearts, as in the rebellion, he's talking to the church now, on the day of testing in the wilderness where your fathers put me to the test and saw my works for 40 years. Therefore I was provoked with that generation and said, They always go astray in their heart. They have not known my ways. As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. What the writer of Hebrews is doing here is he's bringing the warning of Psalm 95 directly into New Testament times, directly into Snowden Baptist Church this morning. He's applying the warning of Psalm 95 to the church. He continues in verse 12. Take care, brothers, sisters. Lest there be in any of you, this is a possibility, an evil, unbelieving heart, leading you to do what? To fall away from the living God. Now, if there's any text that challenges my Calvinistic theology, it's this one. But I'm just trying to preach what the Bible says here. Whether I'm an Arminian or Calvinist, it doesn't matter. The writer of Hebrews says, this is, possible. this is a possibility, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart, leaving you to fall away from the living God, but exhort one another every day, as long as it is called, what? Today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. And then in verse 15, he quotes Psalm 95 again, as it is said, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. And then down in Hebrews 4.3 and 4.5 and 4.7, we have three additional instances where Psalm 95 continues to be quoted. And it's important to note also that the author picks up on that theme of rest, that we had at the tail end of Psalm 95. The concept of rest that God gives is found throughout Hebrews 3 and 4. Now, in New Testament terms, again, we do not rest in any particular land, do we? Rather, our rest is in Jesus. And our rest, according to the New Testament, is already and it is not yet. It's already in Jesus who said, come to me, you you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you what? Rest. We have rest in Jesus, but our rest is not yet in its fullest measure, which is eternity with God in the new heavens and the new earth. The idea in Hebrews 3 and 4 is this, take heed, church to be steadfast and perseverant in trust in God and perseverant in obedience to God and confidence in God to the end, otherwise the final and full measure of promised rest is in jeopardy. Alan Ross puts it this way. He says, those who hear and obey God's word demonstrate that they are people of God and will have a share in the promised inheritance to come, but those who do not respond pro- properly to his word may not enter into that rest. Psalm 95, read through the New Testament lenses of Hebrews 3 and 4, gives us a stark and serious warning, does it not? And my general purpose this morning, worshiping community, is simply to encourage you, in light of the warning, to persevere in faith and persevere in holiness today if you hear the voice of the great shepherd who said my sheep hear my voice obey him persevere in faith and holiness the gospel writer luke and then i'm done the gospel writer luke called jesus cross a new exodus in the greek of nine, luke 9:31 jesus performs an exodus in the cross He delivers his people by the cross, like Moses had delivered Israel from slavery, but way greater. Unlike Moses, Jesus himself is the Passover lamb, the lamb slain on behalf of his people. And we, his people, listen, we, his people, have passed through our Red Sea, 1 Corinthians 10, called Baptism leaving the old behind, and now we find ourselves where? We find ourselves trekking through the wilderness on the way to our final rest. The rock of our salvation, Psalm 95.1. The same spiritual rock, Jesus, who quenched the thirst of Israel in the wilderness, 1 Corinthians 10.4. He quenches our thirst along our journey in our wilderness. He provides all that is necessary for life and godliness. So you are invited to not harden your heart in unbelief as you travel through your wilderness. You are invited in the power of the Holy Spirit to come with perseverance Sunday after Sunday to offer your boisterous worship to the great God we've been talking about and at the very same time my encouragement is continue in faith though though you are buffeted by this culture. Continue to cling to Jesus through all seasons of life. Continue to hold fast your confidence and hope firm until the end. Amen. May God be with us. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we praise and thank you and adore you and we offer our... Loud worship to you because you are a great God worthy of our praise. We thank you for the creation that we are part of, that we live in, that we can marvel at and see your fingerprints. We praise you most of all, though, for Jesus Christ, our Lord, our Savior, the one who shed his blood on the tree, became a curse for us, substituted himself for us so that we might be free from our captivity. We praise you and thank you for Jesus. And Lord, this week I pray over the church that this would be a week of us taking up our cross in the power of the Holy Spirit, perhaps doing the hard thing that we know you are calling us to do, even though it may cost us something, to to live as disciples in this world that mitigates against discipleship. Lord, would you help us? Would you be our rock and our safety this week? In Jesus' name, amen. May the Lord who has never failed in any of his good promises, who does not leave or forsake his own, may he turn your hearts to him to walk in his ways and to keep his commands that he gave our fathers in the faith. Amen.